The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Okay, a couple of announcements to make sure we don't lose everybody on Sunday morning. Uh, Sunday morning, daylight savings time, we go forward one hour. So make sure you set your clocks before you go to sleep Saturday night. Also, on Saturday, April the 1st, we'll have our uh, ladies' prayer luncheon at the Westfall Residence at 10.30 in the morning. And then next week, this is Thursday night, next Thursday night, no Bible class. I will be teaching at uh, Preston City Bible Church. Before we begin our study, we'll, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. So you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I'll pray. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you watch over us, you provide for us, you take care of all of our needs. We thank you for your word that is a complete revelation of all that we need. And the issue today in this church age is to trust in your word, to walk by faith, that is, a trust in your word, and not by sight. That is, not on the basis of of our experience, not on the basis of what we feel, not on the basis of uh, impressions, but on the basis of your objective revelation. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that God the Holy Spirit, who indwells us and empowers us, strengthens us, uh, guides us, and teaches us, that he would uh, help us to enable us to uh, understand your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have been in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 11, talking about the sluggish believer for a couple of weeks and what makes a believer sluggish. And the short version is, is what makes a believer sluggish is a sin nature. And when we get distracted by the sin nature and quit walking by means of the flesh, then that shuts down our spiritual growth, our spiritual advance. Galatians chapter 5 Verse 16, Paul says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The Greek construction there is really important. It's a double negative, which you don't have in English, but you do in Greek, plus a subjunctive form of the verb, which is the strongest way to voice a, an impossibility in the, Hebrew, or in the Greek language. There we go. I finally get my mouse working here. We had a slight buzz there for a minute. Did you all hear that in the back? Okay. okay. Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not, or it will be impossible for you to bring to completion the lust of the flesh. And then in the next two verses, we're told that the, uh, or in the next verse, that the flesh lusts against the, against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. So there's this tug of war that takes place in the believer's life. We're involved in a spiritual warfare that in, that involves three different enemies. And two of these enemies are what we're focusing on in this study right now, and that is the flesh, which is our own sin nature, which is the enemy within, our internal enemy. And then the what the Bible calls worldliness or the world system, based on the Greek word cosmos, which really has to do with a 
the, the structure of the culture, the pagan or human viewpoint culture that surrounds all of us. Ever since the fall of Adam, as society developed, there has been this movement within culture to try to handle the pressures, the problems of life, to explain existence apart from God, to uh, look to other sources of knowledge other than God. This, of course, is what got uh, Eve into trouble in the first place, was rather than relying upon God's revelation for her source of knowledge about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she went to an alternative source of knowledge and listened to the serpent and his temptation. Well, as we look at this issue in Galatians 5.16, that's really the background for understanding the internal dynamics that create the sluggish believer that we're talking about here, or the sluggish backslider in Hebrews chapter 5. That when the believer begins to walk according to the flesh or the sin nature, at that point he's no longer following the leadership of God the Holy Spirit, He is walking by the sin nature, and the sin nature is that internal enemy that has an attraction to the external external modes of the cosmic system. And the interesting thing is that the cosmic system, that culture within which we uh, develop, we were born into, whether it's uh, Western civilization or Western European civilization or American civilization, whether you're born in the South, whether you're born in the North, or whether you're born in the West, whether you're born in uh, uh, like a former Soviet Republic, whether you're born in Asia, everybody, as a result of different things such as language, the religious environment of the culture around them, the norms and standards, the history of those people, have different ways of looking at the world. And that's something we called we call a world view. The Germans had a fancy word for it. They called it a Weltanschauung. And it's, it's a world view. And every culture has a world view, a way of explaining uh, everything in the world, everything from ultimate existence and causation and how the world came, came into being to how we come to know, uh, know the truth and what the truth is, what the truth consists of, whether the truth is relative or absolute, all of these things come into play in a worldview. And, of course, once you uh, define what truth is, then, of course, that impacts the whole concept of ethics and values because ethics and values ultimately flow from your concept of truth. Your concept of truth ultimately flows from your view of ultimate reality in the universe. So ultimate reality in the universe then develops into uh, truth, how you know what you know, Truth then affects your concepts of aesthetics and beauty and art and architecture and music and all of these things. So you see, culture addresses all the aspects of life that we, that we have around us, and these influence us. Now, the job of a Christian, the job of a pastor, as well as the job of the individual believer, is to come to understand that cosmic system around us and how it contrasts with divine view, a divine viewpoint worldview. Because Romans 12.2 says that we're not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by renewing our mind. Now, it's real easy for you and I to sit here 
and to think about some uh, Stone Age culture in Irian Jaya, some tribal culture deep in the rainforest of the Amazon, and think that, okay, if, I were, if I'm going to go there as a missionary, then I have to learn their language, I have to learn their history, I have to learn different things about their art and what, how that relates to their religious beliefs and who are the gods and goddesses that they worship, what are their legends, what are their myths. We have to learn all of that and all of the various nuances of language. We have to learn all about what's considered uh, polite or impolite so we don't say the wrong thing or eat with the wrong hand or whatever it may be. We have to learn all of those different things so that as we go into that culture, we can more accurately and effectively communicate the gospel. That's the end result. But you see, we're, as it were, missionaries in a 21st century postmodern American Southern Texas culture. So we have to analyze all those things that are around us. And that's real hard because most of us have been involved in that culture for so long that we think of that as normative. You know, it's like fish swimming in the water. They don't know they're in the water. It's all around them. And so it's, it's very difficult to pick up on these things. Well, as you become a believer and you begin to grow and advance, you begin to learn the Word of God under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And as you walk by means of the Holy Spirit and you begin to grow spiritually and exchange the human viewpoint garbage in your soul for divine viewpoint truth, then you begin to see more and more of a move away from the culture around you to the point where you, at some point you're going to start feeling uncomfortable. Because as you counter the culture around you, and especially as, as we're in our situation where the culture is drifting at a rapid pace away from our historical Judeo-Christian roots, we, we watch things that happen on the news and things that are that go on in Congress, and we just think the world has gone absolutely crazy. And we can't figure out why it is that they're doing the things they're doing, that they, they don't see that um, uh, certain things should be handled. You, you can't understand why you've got fo- foreign criminal uh, immigrants coming into this country, marching around, demonstrating on the streets, waving their national flags. I mean, how absurd is this? Do you think you could go to their country and demonstrate against a policy in their country and wave an American flag and get away with it? Not at all. I mean, this is just absurd. So why don't we do anything about it? Are we just all scared to death? We're intimidated by, uh, by the fact that somebody may think that we're insensitive and uh, not, uh, not modernist? How have we reached this point? Well, it all has to do with understanding worldview and changing uh, shifts of thought. And the more we become biblical in our thinking, the more it sets us against the culture around us. And so that gap occurs. Now, what happens with a lot of Christians is they reach a certain point where as they sense that gap that, that, that develops between them and the culture around them, they begin to feel that pressure of isolation and so they have, to, they, they have to reach a point whether they're going to go all the way with the Word of God 100% and be a biblical thinking Christian and living it out in their life and really be at odds with the culture around them 
or they're going to find ways of comfortable assimilation with the cosmic system around them so that these radical or these differences don't appear to be that radical. And so at which point they begin to compromise and jettison biblical truth in order to go back into the culture around them. Now this is the same kind of thing that was happening to these recipients of the letter of Hebrews. You had believers, Jewish believers, who were formerly priests, or probably the majority of them were were Levites. And they had trusted in Jesus as the Messiah from the Old Testament, and they were... Uh, had separated themselves from the practices of Judaism in the first century, but due to a number of different things, you had political pressure that was put brought to bear upon them. They weren't really patriotic anymore. Because what's happening, this is the early 60s in the first century, and what's happening is that the, the, the problems with Rome are, are coming to a head, and the pressure's building, and so you're either, you're either with us, the fair, the, the, as the Sanhedrin leading the Jews, you're either with us or you're against us. Now, so this is a challenge to their patriotism at some level. And so there's pressure brought to bear. There is a certain amount of persecution, whether it's overt persecution or just social ostracism. There's still that persecution that is being brought against these believers. So what they, the temptation is that they're going to hit that point of compromise and say, well, okay, this is fine, but let's go back and pick up our traditional Judaistic uh, roots, be Jewish patriots, and go back into into Judaism because, uh, after all, it rationalized where uh, that's really where it all began was with the Old Testament. That's why in the second chapter, the first warning passage, the writer says, Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, lest we drift away. Where were they going to drift to? They weren't going to drift into Greek or Roman paganism. They were going to drift back into uh, Jewish legalism and ritualism away from the truth of God. Well, they had obviously already begun this drift. As I pointed out last time in the Christian life, it's an uphill battle, and you're either in neutral or you're in drive, and there's no break. You're either going forward or you're going backward. There's no point of just sitting and resting. And so they had obviously shifted into neutral, but they had already begun a regression in their spiritual life, which is what the author brings out in this reprimand that he began in verse 11. Talking about Melchizedek, he says, about whom, that is Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Literally, we saw that that meant that about whom, that is about Melchizedek and the Melchizedekian priesthood, the message with reference to us is great or much. There's a tremendous lesson of application from Melchizedek and the royal priesthood of Melchizedek and how that relates to the royal priesthood of the Lord Jesus Christ and the impact on us. But you can't listen to it. And the reason he's saying they can't listen to them is because it's be- they've become dull of hearing. It's hard to explain, not because it's difficult doctrine, but because they've become dull of hearing in their spiritual regression. So we started looking at this whole issue of the characteristics of the sluggish backslider, and I developed this uh, chart that ended with a discussion of cosmic degeneracy. 
Now, I'm looking at this not from the viewpoint of the, of, of the problems and pressures that come just from your sin nature. I mean, every one of us knows that we struggle with the sin nature. And if you don't know that, we can have a talk afterwards and I'll engage in a little counseling. But we all have trouble with the sin nature. We have lust patterns. We have arrogance. All of this plays in terms of our, this, person, this internal pressure that we all have from a sin nature to live a life independent from God. But the good news of the gospel is, is that once we're saved, that power, that tyranny of the sin nature is truly broken so we don't have to follow it. We can make other choices. We can choose to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So we have this very real problem of the internal pressure from the sin nature. But that internal pressure of the sin nature is like a magnet inside of us that is attracted to the iron filings around us of cosmic degeneracy. And so that that inner sin nature tends to drift in the same polar directions as a sin nature towards either legalism or licentiousness. So we develop this chart where if you move towards licentiousness, it develops into immoral degeneracy. And this not only affects sin and behavior and ethics, but it also affects your whole view of how you know what you know or, how, or your view of knowing the truth. Now, this, some, some of the things that I'm going to bring out here seem very subtle to a lot of folks. They sort of make your head spin a little bit. So we have irrationalism and mysticism, and you can trace mysticism and irrationalism all the way back to at least the Tower of Babel and the development of Babylonian mythology. It's the idea that somehow man has this has these internal impressions that give him insight into reality in the universe, truth. He just knows it. Ethically, morally, this is, is governed by licentiousness. It, in a sense, it's throwing off any kind of guidelines, any kind of uh, uh, structure, external structure related to logic or reason. Now, that's on one end of the human spectrum of how you know things. Now, I've been working on this today, thinking this through, that we have these different ways of knowing that man has come up with down through the centuries. Mysticism, and then on the other hand, you have rationalism and empiricism. So in contrast to immoral degeneracy, as we talked about, you have moral degeneracy. Uh, this is uh, what happens when you're, you may be morally correct, but you're so dominated by legalism and self-righteousness that it leads to a different kind of degeneracy. You could almost say that Sharia law in Islam is moral degeneracy. And as Paul pointed out in both Romans 7 and in his, and what he is saying in Galatians 5 is that the more moral man tries to become, ultimately immorality peaks out from behind the covers. Because ultimately you have to deal with that tenth commandment that you shouldn't covet anything that your neighbor has, mental attitude, sin. And so no matter how hard you try, because you're trying to do it yourself, arrogance always manifests itself in the works of the 
flesh in Galatians uh, 5.18. Now, just as immorality has a parallel in the realm of knowledge, morality or this idea of building, uh, building intense, obsessive structures of, of knowledge also has its uh, parallel in the realm of epistemology or knowledge. And so you have man seeking to find truth on the basis of autonomous reason and empiricism. The key word there is autonomous. This can lead ethically to asceticism and self-righteousness. Of course, you have blends that go back and forth, but I'm building the stark contrast here, and and I know you recognize that, that people don't always fit into tight categories, that most of us have moments when we're on one side of this and other moments when we're on the other side. Immorality produced in the ancient world the fertility prosperity worshipers as a classic example of immoral degeneracy and the Pharisees as a classic example of moral degeneracy. Then we went through a chart that should be familiar to many of you that there are basically four ways of knowing, not three systems of perception, four ways of knowing truth. How do people know what they know? When you make a statement, I feel like God wants me to do X, how do you know that? How do you know it with 100% certainty? How do you know anything? Okay? Now, man, apart from God, has come up with basically three systems. Rationalism, which starts with innate ideas. I know certain assumptions. On the, and, it, and it's the, the undergirding presupposition that's unstated. Descartes never talked about it. Uh, Plato never talked, or never talked about it. So, but it's his faith in human ability to properly... Uh, guide his logic. And so the method in rationalism is always uh, rigorously logical based on syllogisms, based on principles of logic and reason. Empiricism doesn't start inside the mind with first principles of reason. It starts externally through what we see. So we build our sense of knowledge, our bank of knowledge, on what we see, what we experience, what we feel. Now, there are many things that we can learn both from rationalism and empiricism that are true. But you can't get to ultimate truth there. That's the issue. See, there are a lot of things that Adam and Eve could learn through the independent use of reason and logic and, and, and empiricism in the garden. They could classify different trees. They could classify different animals. They could name different animals. But they couldn't understand or interpret the nature of that one tree. So because they couldn't interpret that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they couldn't really interpret all the other trees because you had to understand the the, the framework there that God said you can eat from all the trees except one. So you see, you can't understand all the trees unless you understand their relationship to the one. And you can't understand the one unless you understand its relationship to all the trees. You can understand a lot of other things about them, but that one fact that if you eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will instantly die spiritually, you can only learn it one way. God has to tell you. And that's, that's this fourth category under divine viewpoint that we call revelation. God has to specifically inform us of those key elements that give us that, that, that one piece of knowledge that enables us to truly interpret 
Everything that's going on in our life and everything that's going on in history. So it's not that rationalism and empiricism are are wrong. It's that independent use, that autonomous use, that man on his own, apart from any revelation, can come up with truth and knowledge. Mysticism, this idea of inner private experience, I have impressions. And see, see, the thing is, I really got into a lot of study on this back in the late 80s when I was doing investigations of the charismatic movement and faith healers. And these, these faith healers that stand up in front of audiences and they call people out and they say, ooh, I saw a blue light hovering over people. And I went out to Southern California in 19, what was it, 1988 or 89, stayed with... Uh, George Meisinger and and went to a spiritual warfare conference at the Vineyard Church, which was John Wimber's church. That was the hot new thing in the charismatic movement back then. And they had resurrected some old fossil from the healing revivals of the late 40s by the name of Paul Kane. And this guy was really interesting. And you, this huge auditorium in Anaheim where there were about uh, 1,500 people, and they had the lights turned down rather low. And he went into his uh, what they would call worship time, and he would start uh, saying, "Now there's somebody over here, and you're uh, you're there's somebody, and God's telling me that you're wrestling with some some uh, problem, uh, abuse or something." Of course, they just it's it's the same technique that psychics use. You go you go to a tarot card reader, or you go to a uh, you know, palm reader, or you go to to any any psychic, they 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 really have uh, empathetic personalities, and they're able to to read people, read nonverbal communication, uh, all this other stuff, and they 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 throw out these generalities, and the people don't even realize by the expressions on their face and their eyes or mouth how much information they're giving away, and so they just sort of they they're really fishing. But they're able to ask the right questions, and they understand percentages. I talked to a guy named Andre Cole. He used to be with uh, Campus Crusade for Christ. In fact, he wrote a book. I think it was called Psychic Powers or something like that. And, and he w- would talk about how a good psychic or a good faith healer understands all the percentages, just like a good poker player goes into a poker game. He understands all the, all the pr- probabilities, all the uh, different uh, degrees of chance for drawing the next card, uh, no matter what he's holding. And he, 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 if he, they're playing uh, uh, stud poker where the cards are visible, he can, he can work his way through that. Well, that's the way these psychics are, and that's the way some of these, these uh, faith healers are, and that's what they're doing. Well, that particular night, I said, I didn't see anything unusual except he was calling out certain people in the congregation. He was making certain claims about uh, their background, their problems, and the, you, you're, somebody close to you is dealing with a problem with, uh, let me see, uh, alcohol or drugs or, you know, you just, he would name three or four things until all of a sudden he'd hit the right one and their face would kind of light up. Because they're sitting there going, okay, who's he talking about? And they're kind of going through their catalog of their five brothers and sisters and their cousins and their co-workers. And sooner or later, because people have a tendency to want to, want to be helpful and so they don't want to put the guy on the spot and this kind of thing so well the next day I came to the meeting and everybody was all excited because uh, he was talking he had talked about the fact that that he saw blue lights come in and hover over that's how, hover over people that's how I knew who to talk to that so I 
facetiously referred to them as blue light specials. But everybody was excited because when the blue light specials came on, uh, it, it blew the power. That's what everybody was saying the next day. I thought, I didn't see the power go off last night. What are they talking about? And to this day, they still talk about, about that. I've read accounts of it. I, I was there. I didn't see any of that. But, you know, this is mysticism. And see, the thing is, every one of us has certain impressions that we get of things. All through our life, we get all these impressions. And we only remember the ones that are validated. We don't remember the 9,000 other ones that didn't get validated because nothing memorable or significant happened. But we have this one impression where we think something's going to happen and it happens. And we remember that. And that's part of what happens here when people get involved in mysticism in Christian life and divine guidance and trying to relate that to the Holy Spirit. So mysticism is just a way of trying to arrive at truth on the basis not of the use of logic or reason, but on the basis of this inner light or impressions that supposedly come from God. In contrast to this, Biblical truth has always argued that God speaks externally and objectively. We've gone through studies of this. Even when it's private, God has always validated his revelation externally. Now, last time I concluded by pointing out that when we talk about revelation, we have to recognize that revelation either falls into one of two categories. It's either special or it's general. General revelation is nonverbal and non-specific. The heavens declare the glory of God. Revelation, though, is specific. Now, listen to what I'm going to say here. By specific, I don't mean propositional, where God says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. That's propositional revelation. It's verbal. But, it, see, there's also nonverbal Revelation in the Old Testament, they had dreams and visions. They just saw things. Also, you had the Urim and the Thummim that the priest wore. These were two stones that were on the breastplate of the priest. And we don't know precisely how they worked. One glowed or the other glowed or they vibrated. But this was a way that God would answer sort of like true or false or yes or no questions related to divine guidance. You know, should I do this? And then one would glow or the other one would glow. One would glow for yes and the other one would glow twice for no or something like that. And that, see, that's how a lot of people try to treat the guidance, divine guidance in the Holy Spirit. It's not biblical. It's mystical. You don't have to, any kind, if you think that, that you have decision making to go through and God's going to answer you by giving you some kind of a, of a buzz or a, a vibration, and if it vibrates at a low frequency, it's yes, and vibrates at a high frequency, it's no, or there's some sort of impression, that's still special revelation. You're getting some kind of communication from God. Now, special revelation either ceased or it didn't cease. And that's really, that's why, that, what the issue, if once you cross this bridge, that's why it ultimately just dominoes, in, as it did historically, into the charismatic movement. is because you're starting to, to base knowledge on subjective experience. Now, that's an important thing to uh, talk about. What do we mean by experience? You have to be careful because, let me tell you, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an experience. Regeneration is an experience. The filling of the Holy Spirit is an experience. 
Walking by the Holy Spirit is an experience. Everybody's looking at me like, huh? It is. Look up what experience means in the dictionary. It's an event. That's one meaning of the word. The filling of regeneration is an event. Everybody has had that ev- everybody here who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has had that event in their life. But the word experience is also used to refer to the basis for knowledge. So you've got to be careful because you'll hear some people say who will in one sentence shift from one meaning of the word experience, it's an event, to the other, and what they've just done is they've just done a con job on the audience. It's a logical fallacy where they've shifted the meaning of the word and they've used the word in one sense, in one sentence, in another sense, in another sense, but they didn't tell the congregation they were shifting the semantic value of the term. And so when you look at things like uh, statements by uh, Lewis Berry Chaffer, he talks about the indwelling of the, uh, the Spirit as an experience. He's not saying its knowledge is experiential. He was saying it's an event in the believer's life. Got to be careful about these things. We're not referring to the fact that these things are known experientially. They are known through the study of the Word, but they are real experiences, but you don't know them experientially. But they're events that happen in a person's life. Now, the problem that you get into with the top three is that all paganism, all culture, all worldliness around us operates on one, two, or three of those systems of knowledge at some point or another. Everybody around us that's a pure pagan, meaning someone who's operating on a non-biblical view of life, is basing their ultimate view of reality, knowledge, truth, values, morality, aesthetics, beauty, art, music, on rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. Everybody's doing that. And that's... and, and. And we were before we were saved, because we didn't have any option. Now, as we're saved, what we're trying to do is make revelation the sole source of knowledge. And that's hard for us, because when we get out of fellowship, our default position is what? Carnality, and we're going to default to whatever uh, makes us more comfortable, depending on our culture. If you're 9th century, or, or excuse me, 18th century Enlightenment, then your default position epistemologically is going to go towards rationalism. If, you're, if you came out of a New Age mystical home life and background where uh, you know, your mom wore beads and had crystals hanging everywhere and, and uh, came in and told fortunes or whatever, then your default position when you get into carnality is going to be towards what? Towards mysticism. Some of this has to do with personality. Uh, some of this has to do with a lot of different factors, but you have to be objective enough to evaluate yourself. Just as you know where your weaknesses are in terms of sin, you have to know where your weakness are, weaknesses are in terms of, of epistemology. So there's always this pressure from the world to conform one way or the other. As soon as you get out of fellowship, what happens? You start basing your decisions in life on, on autonomous rationalism, empiricism, or mysticism. And what does that do? It erodes your knowledge of the Scripture. It destroys your epistemological foundation in biblical truth. And what, what happens? You become dull of hearing. That's the process. And it happens to, and it can happen to every, every single one of us. Now, so far, all I've done is I've addressed this one area, which is the pressure from mysticism. But I ain't done yet. Good Texas phrase. 
we've got to deal with the whole issue of how rationalism uh, and empiricism put pressure there. But before we leave mysticism, I want to raise a couple of questions. Because there have been many, many well-meaning, many uh, believers, many theologians who have had a quasi-mystical view. Because you see, at some point, we, we, we get just a little bit infected with the world system. And so you have uh, different people who say, well, you know, you really can't tell. If, you, if the Holy Spirit is guiding you, now you don't have that, the word guide anywhere in Scripture. You have this term, leading of the Spirit, that's used twice. It's used in similar contexts in Romans 8.14 and Galatians uh, 5.17. But the leading of the Spirit is just another word, a synonym for walking by the Spirit. Walk, if I'm walking by the Spirit, what am I doing? I'm following the Spirit. What's the Spirit? If I'm following somebody, what are they doing? They're leading me. You see, I can talk about walking behind them or following them or leading them, but I'm saying the same thing three different ways. For example, in Galatians 5, uh, 16, when Paul says, Walk by the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Part of the problem with the lust of the flesh that the Galatians were dealing with was legalism. Legalism and asceticism is part of the uh, trends of the sin nature. And so then Paul says, look, if you're being led by the Spirit, that is, if you are following the Spirit, if you're walking by the Spirit, then you're not under the law. But if you're not following the Spirit, then you're going to put yourself under the law. That's all he's saying there. He's not talking about divine guidance. He's not talking about figuring out where you're going to go to college, who you ought to marry, whether you ought to buy this house or buy that house, have this job or that job. Neither one of these passages in Romans 8 or Galatians 5 are talking about that. Galatians was written first. These are the only two places the terminology is used. He establishes the meaning of the leading of the Spirit in Galatians 5. And that's the same context. He's talking about the struggle between walking by the Spirit and walking by the flesh in Romans 8. And then when he says that if you are a son of God, an adult son, you're what? You're led by the Spirit. Yeah, you can't get to adulthood in the spiritual life unless you've been walking by the Spirit, following the Spirit, and walking in the Spirit's footsteps, which is Galatians 5.22, where it talks about literally marching in step with the Holy Spirit or following in the Spirit's footsteps, which indicates an objective trail, doesn't it? You ever been out on a camp out or somewhere when you were a kid where you're trying to walk in the footsteps of the person in front of you? That's an objective trail that's laid out. You can't just go wherever you want to if you're going to follow in their footsteps. You have to go precisely where they tell you. It's objective knowledge. It's not internal, heebie-jeebie, liver-quiver, pseudo-Christian epistemology. You're following the leading of the Spirit, which is done through the Word of God. So the issues are, how do you know? Okay, let's assume for sake of argument, for the sake of debate, that God the Holy Spirit leads through these impressions. Okay, how do you know it's the Holy Spirit? How do you know when it's not the Holy Spirit? How do you know if you're making a decision and you just feel really certain on the inside that this is the right decision to make? How do you know that's, that's the Holy Spirit? Unbelievers have the same thing. They go through a decision-making process and you'll hear, well, I just felt like that was the right thing to do. So if you as a believer are going to say that this impression is the Holy Spirit, you have to be able to give criteria for how to know that it's the Holy Spirit and not the Holy Spirit. If you can't define it as why it's not the Holy Spirit, then you can't say it is the Holy Spirit. That's how it works.
called logic. Oh, but if you're a mystic, you reject logic, so you won't hear what I just said. Because you got to know it. you got to have that inner feeling. you got to have that impression. If you just knew it, if you just experienced what I've experienced, you'd know it was God. Well, you just declared you're a subjective impressionist. You're a mystic. You've rejected external, any kind of external criterion whatsoever. Just because you think it's God isn't enough. Just because you think it's the Holy Spirit, just because it fits your preconceived notion isn't enough. So to claim in any sense that the Holy Spirit communicates to you directly anything other than the assurance of your salvation, which is Romans chapter 8 as well, the Holy Spirit bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. He doesn't bear witness to our spirit that we ought to go to A&M rather than the University of Texas. He doesn't bear witness with our spirit that we ought to marry Mary instead of Sue, or Joe instead of Bill. He doesn't bear witness with our spirit that we ought to work for Exxon instead of Shell. See? He bears witness with the Scripture only says he bears witness with our spirit that we're a child of God, that we're saved. Furthermore, next question we have to address is how do you verify the guidance objectively? If you can't verify that it is God, you can't say it isn't God. You're caught in that trap again. Third, how do you distinguish this sort of impression, this vibration, this whatever it is, how do you distinguish that from special revelation? You have to do that. If it's not special revelation, what kind of revelation is it? There's only two categories. A fourth question or observation It is this lack of objectivity which is inherent to the subjective or mystical experience that's the major difficulty for any form of mysticism to justify claims to knowledge. You just can't do it. There's no criterion. For the mystic, there is an implicit claim that inner, non-rational impressions are the ultimate criteria. You can't argue with it. That's the problem. You can't discuss it. It substitutes emotion and inner lightism for external truth. It also confuses, now get this, this is really important. It confuses concepts of mysticism with supernaturalism. Remember, the spiritual life is a supernatural way of life that demands a supernatural way of execution. The ministry of God the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who's made us a temple for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is such that He is teaching us His Word. He's illuminating our minds to the truth of God's Word. He's bringing the doctrine in our soul to bear in our mind when we make, when we make decisions and we have to make application. But it's done in, an, in a covert way and not in an overt way. But mysticism isn't supernaturalism. See, people get confused on that. They'll say, oh, well, you're just arguing for rationalism. No, I'm not. I'm arguing for supernaturalism. Not mysticism. Not rationalism, not empiricism, but supernaturalism based on revelation. Don't muddy up the water with pagan terminology. Mysticism is a satanic counterpart to biblical supernaturalism. It's, designed, it's a red herring to convince people who are more uh, empathic that that empathy is somehow the voice of God. The impression of God, some vibration from the Holy Spirit, whatever it may be. 
And you've had this down through history. You've had good and godly men who coming out of pietism. We talked about this last time. You had the rise of pietism after the after the Reformation. You had uh, the holiness movement, the Wesleyan holiness movement in the 19th century, and this impacted people like J. Hudson Taylor, great missionary, opened up China, but he had he was a he had mystical tendencies. So did so did. Um, uh, George Mueller of Bristol, he's the one who had the orphanage, and he had this the, the same elements there. C.T. Studd is another one. If you come out of a Baptist background, you know who C.T. Studd was. But that was typical of that, of, of that era as well. So we always, as Christians, there's always this pressure. We're always struggling with this pressure from just soft mysticism on the one hand and also soft what I'll term soft rationalism and empiricism on the other hand. You see, the other problem that comes out of this, I'm going to skip these slides, is, well, one thing I want to point out from uh, mysticism. See, there's just this tendency to want to interpret things like prophecy uh, in a mystical framework. See, what we want to do is we want to take that frame of reference that we develop from paganism and we want to use that to interpret what's going on in the Word of God. So you'll often hear people, and you really see it a lot today, as they go in and they look at something going on in the Scriptures, they see that's ecstatic. Just like what the prophets in you know, the worship of, of Apollo at, uh, at Delphi were doing. No, it isn't. What they were doing is a counterfeit. It's not the same thing. And you'll have people say, oh, well, prophecy in the Old Testament was ecstatic. Leon Wood, who was a Baptist theologian at Grand Rapids Baptist College in uh, Grand Rapids, uh, excellent Old Testament scholar, wrote a number of tremendous books, Introduction to the Old Testament, Survey of the Old Testament, and in a tremendous article that he wrote some years ago on mysticism and prophecy, he argues that God never used pagan methodology to communicate his word. And so he writes concerning the fact that many people wanted to think, think that what the prophets did were, was some kind of ecstatic frenzy like mysticism, as in mysticism. He writes, In ecstatic frenzy, the subject seeks to withdraw his mind from conscious participation in the world so that it may be open to the reception of the divine word. In Hinduism, they just chant Om and just focus on that until they get into this other state. Some places they use drugs. Sometimes you have like the whirling dervishes in uh, Sufi uh, uh, Islam. You have uh, the um, uh, um, Hasidic Jews uh, have their version of it. Uh, every world religion has their, their charismatic brand. Uh, so he talks about this. He says, To achieve this ecstatic state, poisonous gas may be employed. They discover there's some kind of an outlet under Delphi that the uh, oracle would breathe the gas and speak in tongues and have visions, uh, a rhythmic dance, or even narcotics. The desire is to lose all rational contact with the world and so make possible a rapport with the spirit realm. Already before Israel's conquest of Palestine, Moses calls himself a prophet and states that a prophet like himself would arise after him. That's a reference to Jesus Christ. 
He uses the singular Navi in reference to this one. And so is correctly, it is correctly taken to mean Christ is the supreme prophet thus to arise. But the context shows that he has reference in a secondary sense also to prophets generally who would appear in later history. And the point that he is making is that Moses spoke to God how? God said, I didn't speak to you in veiled utterances, but I spoke to you face to face and mouth to mouth. Not ecstatic utterance. So we see that the whole idea here is that Moses, the prophet par excellence of the Old Testament, didn't operate on ecstatic frenzy. And, and mysticism was never the modus operandi of Old Testament prophets. Okay, we're back to our two views here. Let's go to the other side. See, the, the, the soft mystics have been catching it all for the last couple of weeks. Now we're going to go after the rationalists. Now, rationalism is the idea that human reason must judge the validity uh, of, of Scripture and the spiritual life must be submitted to these autonomously derived categories of truth. Now, I'll give you an example. I was thinking about this today. I'll give you an example, and it has to do with apologetics. This is another problem that Christians have. We, we also have a tendency, that we, we know logic and reason is good, but all of a sudden we tend to do just like the pagans do, and we elevate logic and reason to some ultimate reality. Classic example of this is in apologetics. Now, one of the best papers I've ever read in understanding this was written by Charlie Clough back in the late 70s called Giving an Answer. It's Framework Pamphlet 1. For those of you who have been going through that and you wonder what Framework Pamphlet 1 is, and you've got Framework Pamphlet 2 starts with Genesis. Well, what's in Framework 1? Framework 1 is a, is a study of the, of the theoretical differences, so to speak, in different models of apologetics. And there are three different views of apologetics. For those of you who don't know, this is going to go way over some people's head, but I hope the illustration at least communicates something. You have three different views of apologetics. One is the presuppositional view, which was held by a man named Cornelius Van Til, who was a professor up at Westminster Seminary. Tremendous uh, view of apologetics. Then you have a more rationalistic view. This was held also by a very reformed theologian, philosopher theologian by the name of Gordon Clark. Also held by another excellent apologete by the name of Norm Geisler. We used to call him Storm and Norman. I remember seeing a guy who had more energy and could write more books. And Norm's done some great stuff. In fact, I went to hear him. He was here in Houston a couple of weeks ago, and I went to hear him. But you see, for Norm Geisler and for... Gordon Clark, and for some of these other guys, the ultimate point of contact between the unbeliever and the believer isn't the internal image of God that's being suppressed in unrighteousness, Romans 1. But it is, it's logic. It's the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity. This is the point that you appeal to with the unbeliever. So what you're ultimately showing is that his position is illogical. Well, where did logic come from? Logic isn't independent from God. Logic is within the mentality of God. So you see what he does, what that system does, is it inadvertently separates logic from God 
and establishes as, as an autonomous category. See, this is a problem that we have to face also, is that we have a tendency to make logic and reason independent of the revelation of God. So that we start and we develop theological systems that are logically inconsistent, but they're not biblical. Because they may start with a biblical point, but they start building conclusion upon conclusion upon conclusion that all follows from the, from the original uh, thesis. But somewhere along the way, you're no longer anchoring anything in the revelation of God, and you get off base. And that's as wrong as, as mysticism, on the other hand. You see, paganism always pressures biblical thought to conform to its mode of thinking. And we fight it on every front, front every day. We've all heard pastors who build intricate edifices of theology. And we ask the question, now where, did, where do we find that in the Bible? It sounds logical. I mean, Calvinism, the whole structure of covenant theology is a classic historical example of this. But you start asking questions like, you see all these proof texts that are there, and you start saying, does that verse really teach that? No, it doesn't. But the system is powerful. It's logically coherent. And people living today, that's one reason Calvinism is so popular today, is because people living today in our postmodern, random, uh, relativistic world want a tight, theological, religious system that they can go to to give them answers. But it's got to be a biblical system. See, the Bible is a tight, inherently consistent, internally consistent, rationally coherent system. But stick with what the text says. Don't get away from it. And that's what happens is you build... uh, these autonomous systems, uh, the, Phar- the Pharisaical system was great. It had all kinds of intricacies. You could study it forever. It was intellectually challenging. That's why it attracted the Apostle Paul so much. But it wasn't biblical. It had cut the anchor to biblical exegesis, and it was just an autonomous system. And that is just as wrong because what happens is it... it You're no longer having a relationship with God. You're having a relationship with a bunch of propositions. And that's it. But you just love the intellectual intricacies of it and the intellectual stimulation that it gives you. Okay? The biblical path is as different from either one of those as a creator-creature distinction that we keep going back to. It isn't. It's supernatural. It's based on God's work as a creator. It there, there may be places where you say, well, that that almost sounds like mysticism, or that sounds like it's just a logical system. And so, what happens is, you 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 come from an external frame of reference, and you now you you're wearing those mystical glasses, or you're wearing those rationalistic. Uh, glasses of Platonism, which is what uh, Augustine did in the Middle Ages. And so what happens is when you put on those glasses of Platonism and rationalistic Platonism, 
All of a sudden, that's what you see everywhere in the Bible. When you take that off, you put on mystical glasses, and everything you see is mystical. But what you've got to do is get rid of those worldview glasses from the pagan culture around you and look at the Bible in terms of what it says and don't interpret it within the, the, this other framework. And it just, it just causes so much confusion and disaster in, in the life of the church. And so the writer of Hebrews is going to say you, you let your whole system of knowledge be determined by these outside pressures and now you've reversed course. You ought to be teachers, he says in verse 12. By this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles, the basics, the foundations of the oracles, literally the words of God. It's the plural of logos, the words of God, the messages of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. Does this ring a bell with anybody in terms of another passage? It's a parallel, very close in vocabulary to 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, which talks about carnality. Start Starts off with the verb ophelo, present active participle. It's a concessive participle for though you ought. That's the idea. Though you ought. You're not, but you ought to be. And it, the word ophelo indicates obligation. Obligation. There's obligation in the Christian life. There's ought to in the Christian life. Some of you say that's legalism. No, you're obligated as a child of God, as a member of the royal family of God, to live according to the code of conduct set forth in the Scripture for a member of the family. You know what it was like when you were growing up and you did something that embarrassed your parents and they said, no child of mine's going to act like that. See, you're acting like you're a member of some other family, not this family. Well, see, now we're in the family of God and there's a code of conduct for the royal family. And that code of conduct is our ought. There's an obligation there. It's not legalism. It's a responsibility to be who we are, that we have been bought with a price. Therefore, we are to live under the authority of the one who, who purchased us. And so the writer says, for though, or for even by this time, you ought to be teachers. This is your obligation to be a teacher. And the word there for teacher is the Greek word didaskalos, meaning a teacher, instructor, communicator of the word. Now, this, in this context, he's not talking about being a formal teacher, a pastor teacher, or a, necessarily a formal teacher or instructor in the local church. Now, parents, you ought to be able to teach the Word of God to your children by this time. You can't? Well, what's the matter? You're overloaded in carnality and you're regressing. No, you ought to be able to teach your children by this time. Uh, you ought to be able to teach your neighbors. Look at Ananias and Sapphira as they opened up the Word of God and they explained it to Apollos. See, that's what we're talking about in this context. We're not talking about a formal position in contrast to the way didaskalos is used in the, in the pastoral epistles where it's talking about the formal position of teaching in the church. This is talking to everybody, all these ex-Levitical priests who are now believers, every one of them, y'all all ought to be teachers. Now, not every one of them has a spiritual gift of being a teacher. Not every one of them would ever be in a formal position of teaching. But they ought to be, after a certain level of maturity, able to explain what the Word of God means to other people just because they've understood it. 
So he says, by this time you all ought to be teachers. See, he under, it's a uh, plural, uh, the plural form of the uh, of the pronoun there. So he was uh, clearly speaking with a southern dialect there. Y'all ought to be teachers. But you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. You have to go down back to foundations. That's what I've been talking about really for the last three weeks when we looked at that epistemology chart. See, that's what's so hard for people to understand. It's not easy. I keep quoting Haddon Robinson who said it's hard enough to think, but it's really tough to think about how you think. And that's what this is. How you think are the foundations. If, if you're thinking right things in wrong ways, it's wrong. You've got a, a right thing done in the wrong way is wrong. So if you do a right thing, you're thinking right thoughts. The individual thoughts inside your thinking is right. But the structure of your thinking is autonomous rationalism. Guess what? You're wrong. If you're thinking right things, but the structure, the house of your thinking is mysticism, you may have right thoughts, but they're in the wrong house, so it's wrong. Well, that's really tough to handle. That means that part of my job as a believer is not just to change the furniture out of the house, which is what most Christians want to do. It's that the Holy Spirit's got to tear the whole house down, rip out the foundation and start over. I have to learn how to think about everything in life all over again. Because for 15 years, 18 years, 25 years, 30 years, 50 years, I've been thinking about life Wrong. The structure of my thinking is wrong. Not just the details, but the structure. Well, I can tell I've just burned a lot of brain cells tonight. And it always does that because it's so hard to think about that. How do you, as an American, 21st century American product of this culture, or if you aren't bicultural, learn to think in terms of another culture? Now, that's a really interesting study. Because if you take a kid, you take a baby, an infant, two or three year old, and the parents are American or they're British or they're German, and they go live in, in Asia or they go live in Mexico, then that child's going to grow up bicultural. He's going to be able to think within two different cultures, two different languages. If for some reason they, they live in three different areas, they can become tricultural. They know three languages. And they, if they grow up speaking all three languages, then they're really going to be able to look at the world from three totally different worldviews. Just think if you've got somebody who's, who's born to an American parent and a Japanese parent and grows up in Argentina or Peru. And they're going to learn an American worldview from the one parent. They're going to learn Japanese worldview from another parent. How, how disjointed, how how opposite can you get and then they're going to have an Argentinian worldview from the culture that they're around and it's so hard for us as a western American to think like a Japanese but see at the ripe old age of whatever you are you have to start thinking like a Christian and quit thinking like a pagan American and that's harder to do than trying suddenly to adopt a totally different worldview and trying to think like an Asian instead of a Western European. But see, we have God the Holy Spirit who makes that possible. It's not 
It's a supernatural thing. It's not a mystical thing. It's not a rational thing. It is a supernatural thing that God is going to do in transforming us into his image. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you have revealed it to us. You've given us your Holy Spirit to help us to understand it. And even though we do not understand, nor can we properly articulate how he takes the word and puts it in our soul and transforms our lives, we know that he does that. And he does it in a way that is completely consistent with the way that you have articulated it in your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to trust you, to walk by means of the Spirit, and to internalize your word, because that's the tool that he uses to change us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.